Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 100, The Saxon War, take 2. As we go through the story of the Saxon stem duchy in the 10th and 11th century, two or maybe three main strains of the story emerge. The gradually drifting away of Saxony from the Empire, the relationship between the Saxons and the Wends, and the antagonism between the Archbishop of Hamburg and the Magnates. As for the first part of the storyline, the conflict between the Saxons and the Empire, we are now hitting the hot stage. And I already covered that a long time ago in episode 31 entitled The Second Saxon War. So I had at some point thought of simply dropping the old episode into the feed, as it quite neatly summarizes the events of the Great Saxon Rebellion that precedes the journey of Emperor Henry IV to Canossa. But then I thought I should at least put these events more into the context of the history of the North. So, most of what you're going to hear now is recycled material, with just a few artfully designed segues. As Wilhelm Busch used to say, wovon sie besonders schwärmt, wenn es wieder aufgewärmt. Sorry, can't translate that. Now before we start, let me tell you that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Albert J., Roman B., David B., and Mitchell B., who've already signed up. Last week we saw the Saxons' anger rising and rising and rising as the Emperors Conrad II and Henry III tightened the screws on the duchy. And worse, the church had become a serious impediment to the looting and slaving business. The church insisted that Christians should not be enslaved and thanks to their missionary efforts in the eastern marches, the pool of available pagan slaves was shrinking fast. Resistance to the tightening control was not confined to Saxony. Towards the end of his reign, Hermann von Reichenau, our most reliable chronicler of that period, writes, quote, At this time, both the foremost men and the lesser men of the kingdom began more and more to murmur against the emperor. They complained he had long since departed from his original conduct of justice, peace, piety, fear of God and manifold virtues in which he ought to have made progress from day to day. That he was gradually turning towards the acquisitiveness and a certain negligence that he would become much worse than he was before. End quote. When Henry III died in 1056, the empire fell to his six-year-old son, Henry IV, and his mother, the Empress Agnes, as regent. Agnes was in over her head and made several far-reaching and arguably catastrophic mistakes that undermined the imperial position. As for the border region, the death of the Emperor Henry III coincided with one of the rare defeats of the Saxons in their wars with the Slavs. The Markgraf of the Northern Marches, William, had taken an army of Saxons of infinite number who have been defeated and killed. Naturally, for that, the Saxons blamed the Emperor. Who else? Had he only sent more troops, made a better plan, or would just generally be better at his job. Lambert of Hersfeld writes that the princes of Saxony, presumably all of them then, had reached an agreement that the way to get compensation for their losses would be by seizing the kingship from the young King Henry IV. Not just that, but they were committed to actually killing the child, which would have created an absolute outrage. They then lined up behind the most unlikely candidate for the throne, a Count Otto, who was a half-brother of the Markgraf of the Northern Marches, whose mother was apparently a Slavic servant. 
This Otto person had spent most of his life in Bohemia and only come to Saxony when his brother had died in the hope of receiving the Northern March. Once there, the Saxon princes sold him the idea he could aspire straight for kingship. I'm struggling to believe how serious the whole affair was, but it came to an actual battle, when the conspirators, with sad Otto in their midst, were heading to a royal assembly at Merseburg. On the way, they ran into two distant relatives of the child king, the Counts of Brunswick, who will meet later again, and those realized quite quickly that something was amiss. Plus, they hated Otto and his friends for some other reason. In any event, the two sides got to work, tearing each other apart. Otto and one of the royal cousins managed to run each other through with their lances, both dying from their wounds. In the end, the royal party prevailed and this particular insurrection petered out. But that does not mean the Saxons were done, nor was anyone else. The years of Agnes' regency and then the rule of Archbishop Anna of Cologne were extremely chaotic. The members of the Regency Council were accused of the most base corruption, shoving royal assets to each other whilst demanding bribes for the confirmation of rights and privileges. At the same time, the duchies of Swabia and Bavaria slipped out of imperial control to men who would become the most irreconcilable enemies of the emperor. Check out episode 30 for detail. This Regency period ended when Henry IV had been declared an adult at the ripe old age of 15. It is around now, 1066, that Henry IV begins his major castle-building projects around Goslar. His father had already begun the process of creating a coherent royal territory around the silver mines in the Harz Mountains. These royal lands around Goslar were administrated by Minister Jalis, unfree men trained in war and administration. Mighty castles are built on the tops of mountains, castles no longer designed to protect the local populace in times of war, but to suppress them. Instead of enfiefing these castles to loyal men of noble descent, he garrisons them with the sons of peasants trained in war who owed everything to him. He put the administration of the royal territory not into the hands of a count, as would have been the case 50 years earlier, but appoints a governor, a prefectus, who could be hired and fired at will. The largest and the most important of these new castles was the Harzburg, not far from the imperial residence in Goslar. The Harzburg was not only one of the largest castles built in the 11th century, rivaling Folk of Anjou's mighty constructions. It was also designed as an imperial residence and administrative center. Few things indicate more clearly the change of times than the fact that the emperors are leaving their indefensible palaces on the plains and move behind 10-meter-high walls and mountaintops. The Harzburg contained an imperial palace as well as a monastery, Henry IV had his brother Conrad, who died very young, as well as his first son, buried in this richly decorated chapel. He also transferred the imperial regalia, i.e. the imperial crown, the holy lands, etc., onto the Harzburg. Once the walls of the Harzburg and other fortifications are going up, the empire is shaken by a sequence of scandals that further undermine the imperial reputation. The first one involved Henry IV's attempt to gain a divorce from the Empress Bertha, something that did not happen and something that he will later be very grateful for. The second one involved the recently appointed Duke of Bavaria, Otto of Nordheim. Otto was from a Saxon noble family that had come to prominence under Henry II. Otto himself made a very advantageous marriage when he married Richesa, the granddaughter of Otto II, who had brought a huge dowry. He was put in as Duke of Bavaria by Agnes in 1061, which was an odd choice to start with. 
There's no indication that Otto of Nordheim was involved in the attempts on Henry III's life in 1046 and the botched coup of 1057, but he was such an important figure in Saxony, it is unlikely he was kept in the dark. Nordheim then appears again as a co-conspirator in the kidnapping of Henry IV at Kaiserswerth, something again that cannot have endeared him to the young king. Then a sequence of mysterious events take place. Whilst Henry was staying at Otto of Nordheim's estate, one of his ministeriales is ambushed and killed. Things are being investigated, but nothing comes of it. But life is cheap and ministeriales are still serfs, nobody ascribes much significance to the event. In 1070, a certain Enigo, a thug of ill repute, claims publicly that Otto of Nordheim had tried to hire him to murder the king. Otto of Nordheim strenuous denies the claims. In classic 11th century fashion, when it's a man's word against another's, the resolution has to be through trial by combat. Otto of Nordheim initially accepts the ruling, but does not appear on the set dates in Goslar to fight for his honour. Under these circumstances, the Saxon magnates have to pass a judgment in default. Otto of Nordheim was stripped of the Duchy of Bavaria, all other fiefs and even his allodial possessions. Nordheim is declared an outlaw. According to the chronicler Bruno, this was all a plot by Henry IV to strip Nordheim of his title. Bruno even alleges that Nordheim would have been killed on the king's orders even if he had won the trial by combat. Now I find the last point very hard to believe. The trial would have taken place in full view of the Saxon nobles and if Henry would have wanted to pull a stunt like this, his reputation would have suffered immeasurable damage. That, in combination with the string of assassination attempts by Saxon nobles and the mysterious death of his minister Jarlis the year before, makes it likely that there was something to this allegation. Guilty or not, Otto finds support from other Saxon nobles, including from Magnus, the son of the Duke of Saxony, in his fight with the king. But he failed to bring the whole of the duchy behind him and had to submit to the emperor after a year of fighting. Henry IV imprisons him and Magnus. Otto of Nordheim is released in 1072 and some of his inherited lands are returned to him, minus a chunk Henry wants to keep. Magnus, who after his father's death had become the Duke of Saxony, is kept for longer, presumably as insurance against another uprising. As far as insurance go, this one did not work. In the summer of 1073, the Saxons had enough of Henry's castles. What pushed them over the edge was that Henry, cash-strapped as he was, did not pay the ministeriales who manned the castles. As a consequence, the ministeriales forced the local peasants to bring food to them, and if they failed to do so, burned their villages and raped their wives and daughters. At least, that is the story told by the usually extremely biased chroniclers Bruno and Lambert. And then it may also be that the villages belonging to the castles were obliged to bring produce by law and custom, as was the case with the castles the mighty Saxon lords had built themselves. The only difference was that the soldiers manning Henry's castles weren't Saxon, but foreigners from elsewhere, possibly as far away as Swabia. In June of 1073, the magnates of Saxony, including the bishops of Magdeburg, Halberstadt, Hildesheim, as well as Hermann Billung, uncle of the incarcerated Duke Magnus of Saxony, and Otto of Nordheim, appear before the emperor in Goslar, demanding an audience to discuss the castle-building program. Henry IV does not grant an audience. In fact, he leaves the Saxon magnates standing outside the castle while he's playing dice with his mates inside. Again, as reported by our biased chroniclers. 
This is often seen as an unnecessary insult that justifies the upcoming rebellion and puts Henry IV in the wrong. On the other hand, imperial dignity required that the king would not yield to such explicit demands. Henry IV had had a poor previous experience when he yielded princely demands to come to an assembly in Trebur to defend his advisor, the Archbishop Adalbert of Hamburg-Bremen. That was an experience he was not too keen to repeat. Plus, Henry also had been assembling an army to campaign against Poland, which would come in handy if he needed to suppress any Saxon uprising. The Saxon magnates are now infuriated to the max. A month later they meet at Hüttensleben for an assembly. There, Otto of Nordheim gives his famous speech, which I will try to translate here. Thanks, by the way, to Diepel.com, whose free translation service has become a lifesaver for this podcast. So, here is Otto of Nordheim. The calamities and disgraces that our king has brought upon each one of you for a long time are great and unbearable. But what he still intends to do, if the almighty God permits him, is even greater and more severe. Strong castles he has erected, as you know, numerous in places already firm by nature, and had placed in them a great multitude of his vassals, and abundantly provided with weapons of all kinds. These castles are not erected against the heathen, who have completely devastated our land, where it borders theirs, but in the midst of our country, where no one ever thought of making war against him. He has fortified them with such great effort, and what they mean for this land some of you have already experienced. And if God's mercy and your bravery does not intervene, you will see all experience it. They take your possessions by force and hide them in their castles. They abuse your wives and daughters for their pleasure when they please. They demand your servants and your cattle and all they like for their service. Yes, they even force you yourself to bear every burden, however odious, on your free shoulders. But when I imagine in my thoughts what is still waiting for us, then everything that you are now enduring still seems to me to be bearable. For when he will have built his castles in our own country at his discretion and will have equipped them with armed warriors and all other necessities, then he will no longer plunder your possessions one by one, but he will snatch from you all that you possess with one blow, will give your goods to strangers, and will make you yourselves, you free-born men, oblige unknown men as servants. And all this, you brave men, will you let that happen to you? Is it not better to fall in brave fight than to live a miserable and ignominious life, being made shameful mockery by these people? Even serfs, who are bought for money, do not endure the unreasonable commands of their masters, and you, who were born free, should patiently endure servitude? Perhaps you, as Christians, are afraid to violate the oath with which you have paid homage to the king, indeed to the king you have sworn. As long as he was a king to me and acted royally, I also kept the oath I swore to him freely and faithfully. But after he ceased to be a king, the one to whom I had to keep loyalty was no longer there. So not against the king, but against the unjust robber of my freedom, not against the fatherland, but for the fatherland, and for freedom, which no good man surrenders other than with his life at the same time, I take up arms, and I demand of you that you also take them up. Awake, therefore, and preserve for your children the inheritance which our fathers have left you. Beware, lest through your carelessness or slothfulness you yourself and your children become serfs to strangers. End quote. 
Now, before you go and think that this is the first outburst of genuine German nationalism, I have to stop you there. When Nordheim talks of patria, of fatherland, he talks about Saxony, not Germany. And when he talks about freedom, he's not talking about human rights, but ancestral privileges, the freedoms as they will later be called. Arousing the speech is nevertheless, and the Saxons raise an army and head towards the Harzburg, where Henry IV had gone to hold out while his agents bring over the army initially meant for the Polish campaign. The Saxons set up camp on an opposite hill and sent their demands to the king. He was to dismantle his castles in Saxony and dismiss his false councillors. The Harzburg was almost impregnable, so the Saxons blockaded the castle's food supplies whilst throwing large stones down on the fortifications from a new structure built on the opposite hill. Henry's hope for support from the army readied for the war in Poland was quickly dashed. The mighty princes who made his forces shared many of the views Otto von Nordheim had articulated in his speech. They could see that if Henry were to prevail in Saxony, he would proceed to build similar castles in Bavaria, Swabia and anywhere else in the country. So the princes withdrew their troops. Some magnates, led by the Archbishop of Mainz, go further, allegedly offering Otto von Nordheim the crown. Henry IV fled the Harzburg and set up camp in Worms. There he managed to gather some bishops for an attempt to make a military move on Saxony, but his support was far too weak. On February 2nd, 1074, he signed the Peace of Gerstungen, which cannot be described as anything but a complete capitulation. In a near full assembly of the great bishops and princes of the realm, Henry IV concedes the demolition of all his castles, dismissed his councillors, and gave full amnesty to all the rebels. So Henry IV withdrew the garrison of the Harzburg and immediately the Saxons stormed in. The Saxon troops, it's important to note, were not just aristocratic knights, but comprised a lot of free and half-free peasants. These guys were the first through the gate and began the demolition work. In the peace agreement, it was specifically stated that the demolition of the Harzburg should be gentle, respecting the imperial chapel on the site. Well, that did not happen. The Saxon commanders could not stop their enraged mob from tearing down the chapel, stealing the relics and horror of horrors, pulling the remains of the salient imperial princes buried there out of their coffins and throwing them in the ditch like vile garbage. This profound insult to the honour not just of Henry IV but of the realm as a whole led to one of these sudden mood swings that punctuate so much of medieval history. The Saxon nobles apologised immediately and promised a thorough investigation and harsh punishments for the perpetrators. But that was not enough. The mighty princes who did not treat their peasants any different to the way Henry IV had treated the neighbours of the Harzburg, they realised that these Saxon armies contained an unsettling large contingent of free peasants. And in 1073-74 there had already been uprising in major cities, namely Worms and Cologne, where the bishops had to run for their lives. Even the mighty Archbishop Anno of Cologne had been attacked. He only got away with his life because one of his supporters had put a door into the city walls near his house. This hole of Anno can still be seen in Cologne. Now given the choice between supporting a potentially overbearing emperor or the rebel-rousing Saxons, many of the southern dukes, and namely Rudolf von Rheinfelden, the Duke of Swabia, took the side of Henry IV. Henry IV therefore could muster an army to bring the Saxons to heel and the two sides met at the Unstrut River on June 9, 1075. What ensued 
was one of the bloodiest and most painful battles of the 11th century. Though in principle it was Saxons against the rest of the kingdom, in reality many families were split. Fathers were fighting sons, brothers were killing each other in the melee. The unity of the kingdom created when King Henry the Fowler had fought against the Hungarians literally around the corner from here was trampled into the dust of the early summer's day. Henry IV prevailed in the brutal fighting. After the battle, his troops were let loose across Saxony, murdering and pillaging wherever they went. On October 25, 1075, the Saxon barons conceded an unconditional surrender. This is by no means the end of the story. The civil war will continue. But it is a crucial moment. Up to this point, there has been war and bloodshed in the kingdom. This is the Middle Ages, after all, where the state had not yet acquired the monopoly of violence. But this is the first time imperial power stands against an entire duchy, not just its duke or a set of noblemen. If I had to put a pin into the timeline when the history of southern and northern Germany split apart, the battle on the Unstut would be my first choice. Next week we'll look at something that happened around the same time and involves several of the protagonists of this tale, but is quite entirely different. It is the story of Gottschalk, the leader of the Slavic Abodritis, who is trying to take his people out of the bind they find themselves in. He does that in close alliance with Arada, the Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen, and will meet his fate when the great prelate falls, but still paving the way to a reset of the relationship between Wends and Saxons. I hope you will come along. As I said last week, when you hear this, I will probably still be sailing somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. If you want to follow along, you can do so on a website and app called Marine Traffic. Search for the vessel Purple Rain sailing under a French flag. What this journey means, apart from working like a dervish to get enough episodes recorded to cover the time, it also means that my marketing efforts trickle down to zero. Hence, I would hugely, hugely appreciate if you were to help promote the show. Why not send a link to the history of the Germans to a friend or family member who might be interested? Write a comment on one of my older posts or reshare it, which tends to revive them, and even write your own post on social media. That would be massively appreciated, as would obviously signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>